Hi, I'm Andrew, and this is the Daily Keenon podcast about today's global crisis. The coronavirus pandemic is dramatically disrupting not only our own daily lives, but also society itself. This show features conversations with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers about the deeper economic, political, and technological consequences of the pandemic. It's the daily podcast trying to make long-term sense out of the chaos of today's global crisis. It is October the 30th. I can't believe it. It's almost November, and we know what happens at the beginning of November, at least in America. I'm not sure if the rest of the world knows what's going on here. Uh, This week, we've been having updates from some of our favorite guests on the show about the uh, upcoming election. Uh, and I couldn't resist today having my old friend Chris Schroeder on the on the um, uh, on the show. He's the co-founder of Next Billion Ventures. He's a guy who's worked for James Baker in in, in Washington D.C. He's an author, uh, an entrepreneur. He was the, the person who put the Washington Post online many years ago. Uh, so he brings a number of different hats to this conversation. Um, I want to begin. Chris, with uh, some thoughts on on these pieces that are running in the in the Financial Times, uh, Martin Wolf, another former guest on the show, and Roger Cohen about America's role in the world in terms of the election. Uh, as uh, as the co-founder of Next Billion Ventures, pre COVID, you spent a lot of your life traveling around the world, particularly in the Middle East, but in Asia and Latin America, and of course Europe. Uh, to what extent is this an election about America's role in the 21st century world? Yeah, I think uh, in many respects, it's very much about this. I mean, domestically, what has been shocking to me is that global affairs almost don't come up at all. If you look over the debates and what have you, there'll be some discussion about China for sure, which may be the only truly bipartisan issue right now. But, But the fact of the matter is the rest of the world, to the degree that they're thinking about us at all, are wondering what's going to come out of this election and how are we going to engage in a very different world? Because this isn't just about a new world because of COVID. There have been foundational structural shifts happening around the world, China being an obvious example, but also that there are little Chinas rising everywhere where people now have a choice. They have options to deal with other countries, other economies, and are not merely waiting to see what we do. And that has nothing to do with COVID. That's been happening anyhow. It's probably been accelerated by COVID. And it means that we're going to have to figure out a very new kind of engagement going forward. And this election will, I think, be decisive in that front, even if we haven't talked about it that way. Yeah, uh, Chris, uh, you're absolutely right. I was struck, as many others were, uh, by the absence of any foreign policy discussion in the final presidential debate. There was some stuff on North Korea, which was really an extension of Trump's cult and the anti-cult of Trump. why? Why has foreign policy simply disappeared? Is it because of our obsession uh, with Trump, the fact that we can't escape this guy for better or worse? Or has something else happened in America to suggest that we've retreated into our domestic obsessions? I think there's probably elements of both of it. I mean, people forget. I mean, I remember this back when I was a kid working in presidential politics. The reason why global affairs were often more front and center is the Cold War was on. 
And so there was a lot of a kind of a distinction about how to think about Russia in particular, and perhaps the rise in China. And the dynamics were very clear about how they affected us here at home and how we were thinking about our place in the world. But, but in the end, people did not really decide on foreign affairs ever, I think, per se, beyond that kind of a dynamic. It's now just compounded as we've had this clear inward look, frankly, from both parties. I mean, Trump has manifested it in a very specific way, obviously, about America first and that kind of thing. But I think both the left has joined him in effectively saying we need to think more about what's happening here. We need to rethink things that have been happening abroad. Certainly, the going through the crises we've done, the wars that we went through have compounded different versions of this narrative, both left and right. And I think at the end of the day, people are starting to focus what is here. What is lost is getting our agenda right here at home has multiplier benefits, not only in our place in the world, but how we can engage in the world very beneficially to our businesses and to our existence here as well. It's somehow or other has become now black or white, as opposed to a no new way of thinking about how to have a very sound domestic agenda that in fact instructs what our position would be in the world in a new kind of engagement. Chris, earlier this week, uh, to many people's amusement and horror, uh, Donald Trump had Nigel Farage, the pinup boy of Brexit, uh, with him at an Arizona uh, rally. To what extent is this debate about isolationism in America and this return, it seems, to xenophobia, to the America is great, i.e. we don't want to have anything to do with the rest of the world and we want to get out of all international agreements um, and we view the world with a deep suspicion? Well, some of it, as I was saying before, I think has always been there, uh, one element and across the political spectrum. But it's been sleeping. It's something that no one's ever really activated. Is that well, fair? Certainly it's not been activated. Not only has it not been activated at a time when, in fact, because of the way the world is changing, our leadership and our engagement should be a more central issue than it is. It's, in fact, more the way you're describing it, which has come in. But I think, among other things, we are also in a world where people get very wrapped up around a particular soundbite. People get very wrapped around what their narratives and is kind of looking for their narrative to be confirmed. And so it's very easy to look at something in very simple messaging, both left and right, and say, this is what we want to do and this is where we want to focus. And what it does is it has an element of hubris, the whole concept that America is still number one, or American exceptionalism, meaning that America is better than everyone else, has always been flawed, but now has become literally overtaken by events. The world has evolved and changed in many very different ways, and it means that the kind of engagement we have to have is one that doesn't lend itself to simplicity, but actually more to co-authorship. And to go home politically and say, look, folks, we need to think about what shared interests we have with China as well as we're beating them up, what we can do with our alliances in Europe that are new than what we've done before. Those are not easy conversations. It is much easier to be able to say, I am anti-China, or at the end of the day, Europe should pay their way, as opposed to really having a clear strategy by which those tactics may fit in in some form. Chris, as I mentioned earlier, many years ago, you worked for James Baker in the first Bush administrations. So politically, I guess you're on the, the center right. Uh, there's a new book out about James Baker, uh, um, uh, which has been extremely well reviewed, rather nostalgic about the, 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 the glory days of the, 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 the Baker Bush era when uh, distinguished rich, powerful men like James Baker and George Bush ran the world. Are you articulating uh, uh, Baker's 
philosophy of the world of responsible uh responsible traditional government top down or has something profoundly changed can we go back to the world of baker and bush you you can go back to a sense of integrity and a sense of building both personal relationships as well as a national uh, relationships the way president bush and secretary baker formed with their compatriots around the world and have a real conversation of a again a sense of co-authorship as you remember, President Bush refused to go to the Berlin Wall when it collapsed and declare victory. There's always this kind of a sense of, of a strength of your character and position, but at the same time, not feeling like you lauded over people. And there's no question that not only can we go back, back to that, that's in fact a prerequisite, I believe, for engaging in the world as it is today, very different. But of course, there are things which are very, very fundamentally structurally changed. Uh, China is not going away, and China is a you know an astounding history, an astounding culture, and incredible technological innovation, and so on. That will be a reality not only in China but in terms of its footprint around the world. As I've alluded to in my work in doing venture capital around emerging markets, there are now hundreds of little Chinas from Indonesia to Egypt to Sao Paulo, where you have young talent being unleashed bottom up for the first time, doing amazing things at scale that are no longer waiting for America's Facebook or Instagram or WhatsApp to show up to define what the world will be. They are defining their own world on their terms because they can do it. And that goes to the essence of your question, because we are not in a top-down world alone. This is also a world with technology and communication is allowing truly bottom-up initiative by talent being unleashed everywhere. And if we're not responsive and understand the top-down matters, but if we're not understanding about how to engage in this massive shift going on around the world, we will simply miss it because probably, certainly in my field of technology, but I think more broadly, for the first time since World War II, the rest of the world has real choice. And that choice might be their own that they're creating there, or it could be China, or it could be someone else from another market. But the world is at everyone's fingertips, effectively one click away. And that is a foundationally different de de development and dynamic than I faced when I was working for President Bush or Secretary Baker. Chris, in a way, you wrote about this world uh, in your uh, book. I think you, it came out about four years ago. It's a wonderful read, Startup Rising, about entrepreneurial, the entrepreneurial revolution and the remaking of the Middle East. We've had a number of books over the years about the remaking of the Middle East. I'm not sure if it's ever been remade. Um, the, the Trump people are claiming um, that they are remaking the Middle East. Um, I, I know you haven't been to the region for a while because it's hard to travel, and your remit now is broader than just the Middle East. But what's your view of, of what's changed in the Middle East over the last four years? Look, I think a lot has changed. Some of it is concerning Lebanon being a, a crystal clear example of that. And there are dynamics in other states that, of course, we have to watch very carefully, and the world is watching very carefully. But at the same time, as, a, as an interesting thought experiment, if the recent announcement between the United uh, Arab Emirates, UAE, and Israel happened under President Obama, I don't have any doubt that the very people who are criticizing it uh, uh, would not be criticizing it. And so, you know, I think one has to give credit to President Trump for having this dialogue and seeing what might happen here. Now, obviously, the devil is going to be in the details. I'm deeply concerned about what this will mean for the Palestinians on the ground and everywhere around the world. And I think sometimes people think if you have these big discussions and big treaties and you throw a lot of money at things, that will take care of many structural concerns that still need to be cared for. 
But it's absolutely a moment. It is absolutely a moment to wonder who will follow suit in this. What will Saudi Arabia do about this? What does it mean not only for the Gulf and Israel, but what it might mean more broadly? Um, that is a rethink and it is a reset. How much and how far we'll have to say. But I will say, again, with the bottom up that I'm with, the young people are just looking for opportunity to solve problems that they have in their teeth to solve with a technology uh, whose tools will help them solve it. And they want to solve them not only in their backyard, but in as wide a swath of a new globalism as they can reach. And that's, that's no going back. That will continue. Well, Chris, you're very brave to come on this show and suggest that not everything Trump has done is, is disastrous. What about his tech policy uh, or perhaps lack of tech policy? Um, he, the White House boasts about a, a billion dollar investment for AI and quantum computing. Um, has tech or the industry, the broad industry, has it benefited in any way under Trump or has it basically just been left to itself? Well, I think a lot of it has been left to itself. And personally, from my own experience, left to itself is not a terrible thing. I mean, these reports of not only America, but other countries creating billion dollar funds and all the devil is in the detail and how much they are really kind of helping the dynamic history will have to prove. But the fact of the matter, there are things happening there that we're not really focused on, which you can't say necessarily is because of a certain president, but is certainly because of our times. And an obvious example of this is COVID. Now, COVID obviously is, is terrible for all the reasons that we know and that we experience it, but it has also triggered two accelerations, which I think have huge impact on technology. The first is, and this is a global phenomenon, not just an American phenomenon, it has accelerated humans' behavior and acceptance of using technology in their day-to-day -day lives. So we forget, we think, we take, you and I take for granted e-commerce, but the reality is only 12 or 14% of retail transactions in America are in e-commerce. There's a huge shift. In the parts of the world that I'm in, it may be 2% or less. But all of a sudden, people have no choice but to buy and sell things online, to use mobile money or to find a credit card, which they may have never used before because they've had no choice. All of a sudden, their kids are using technology to at least supplement, if not replace, education temporarily. And a bunch of people have been very nervous to see doctors are actually intrigued by the idea they can do it from the safety of their home. This is an unleashing of behavior mm. and acceptance of technologies, which is... I think profound, and it's literally taken maybe 10 years of what might have been behavioral change into a matter of, of a few months. Equally, and in some respects even more fascinating, is the amount of demand on coming up with solutions for COVID very quickly has actually been a revolution in biotech writ large. Never in American history or world history have we seen this many vaccines pump through the system this quickly in attempts to figure out what we can do with this. And what that has had is an amazing amount of money and innovation unleashing among scientists. And I don't care if it's in cancer research or COVID related stuff or disease detection or genomics. Every scientist I talk to will say for all the pain we're going through, this is a revolutionary period in the unleashing of biotech and science here. Now, you don't credit that for any one government, but you certainly say it is a reality of our existence that we're not focused on and is going to make the next 18 months and beyond very interesting. Yeah, Chris, uh, what you're saying was echoed by uh, Larry Downs, who was on the show earlier this week. He had a Harvard Business Review piece talking about these revolutions in, in biotech, in uh, transportation, uh, in medical. Um, and he was arguing, given 
the shifting zeitgeist on tech in DC on both sides of the aisle, that we need a, a measured approach to regulating fast change tech. You're talking to me from Washington, DC. Are you fearful that the that that both parties are increasingly suspicious of technology and that we might indeed overregulate it in the future? Yes, I am. And, and what's interesting is that there's there's more of an acceptance of technology and there's a debate about whether big technology is a good thing or bad thing for the country. And what is confusing me, and I'm not an expert on antitrust by any stretch of the imagination, is that people are trying to take kind of legacy regulatory environments and sort of thrust them upon the innovation and I'm not quite clear what questions are really asking. So, for example, traditionally for 100 years, antitrust has been about consumer protection and protecting price, right? Standard oil gets too big. They can control how much you and I pay for petrol, and that becomes a problem over time. Well, the big tech companies, for the most part, are, are free or near free. So how do you think about them in terms of consumer impact? Most people, frankly, are very delighted by their experience with WhatsApp or Netflix or what it might be. But on the other hand, there's also a new currency, and that currency is our data or our privacy. Do we need to think about that differently? That's a real conversation. Is innovation being squashed by size? When you have that much money and that much data and that much access to customers, does it actually make it harder for the little guy to be able to innovate in very clever and innovative ways because of that? To me, these are very reasonable discussions, but I think what happens typically in politics is it becomes a good versus evil, big versus little, jerry-rig existing regulations, and not having a serious conversation, which we really need to have, I think, with large in the country, which is what do we want this to be? What are we aiming for strategically? Not just reactionary in almost a hashtag Twitter sense, but what is it in terms of what is best for our country and best for our place in the world? And at least in my limited view of this, that conversation almost rarely happens uh, in the public arena today. Chris, you're too kind. You don't have a limited view. That's, you're one of the few people who don't. That's why I'm interested in, in your take on this debate about Section 230. Uh, Zuckerberg and, and Dorsey and everybody else was in D.C. this week uh, talking about the issue of Section 230. Uh, you, um, you were the original publisher of the, the Washington Post online, so you know this space as well as anyone. Does Section 230 need to be changed? And if it is, will it change everything in, in online publishing? Look, I, you know, again, like everything, the devil's in the detail. And by the way, I was, there, were, there were several people ahead of me who've done, who did a lot for WashingtonPost.com by the time I was able to get involved with it. Um, but look, I think at the end of the day, what, what often we miss in these kinds of debates are the unintended consequences that come from it. So there's been this public outcry that the Facebooks and the Twitters of the world need to control their, uh, their algorithms, or they need to make steps to, to quote unquote, make this a, a better, more efficacious information resource. And, and we get into the very classic, amazing conversation that's true both in the algorithms created by people, but also from a day-to-day -day perspective, who is to judge? Who is the one who has got the arbiter of truth to say at any given time, if someone tweets a certain thing, I should take them off and what have you. And where I come back you had that problem at the Post. The Times has the problem. We have this problem on Now TV. I mean, traditional media and publishers have always had this issue and had to deal with it. I couldn't agree with you more about it. I mean, I can't tell you. We were one of the first publishers that Google integrated into our site, you know, over 10 years ago. And the mistakes that happen all the time were amazing. You debated them, you pushed back on them, and you hopefully made things better over the time. 
not unlike the earlier part of the conversation, I think one, people are sort of obsessed with the idea that big is evil. And so they're coming at them almost in an abstract sense, but also they're not willing to have to me one of the most important parts of this conversation, which almost never appears, which is our individual responsibility. Now, I have no doubt that Facebook has been ham-fisted in the way they've communicated certain things and have testified and what have you. I have no doubt there may be structural issues there that they can get better. But to me, that pales in comparison with the fact that we as individuals surround ourselves with people who agree with us only, who are not particularly curious, who are not particularly seeking other voices in our own way, and then we get all spun up about it their way. So I think that some combination of, of holding accountability and thinking about what these organizations can do better, which I actually believe many of them are trying to do, but we have to stop and breathe and look in the mirror a little bit and say, to mix uh, uh, literature, metaphors the fault lies not in our stars but in ourselves as well chris you were an undergraduate at, at harvard then you went to the business school there did you take any classes with joe nye i audited classes with joe nye but i didn't actually take right any. so joe nye of course is the father or the inventor of the concept of, of of soft power in america arguing that america's real strength in the world is its soft power i've always thought chris that you claim to wear many hats, but if you wear one hat, you are one of the personifications of American soft power. You spend your life going around the world, investing in innovation, and you represent that spirit of innovation in America. What should American soft power be uh, in the 2020s? How does America need to rethink its image in the world? So one of the biggest challenges throughout American foreign policy history, you know, since World War II and maybe before, has been a very great difficulty in understanding the ground on the grounds on the terms. We have a sense of what it is. We'll put it in a framework of a Cold War or whatever it is, America first. And we're not really stopping and listening and really engaging on how folks on the ground have particular needs and particular uh, distinctions, which are massive culturally and highly, highly nuanced. And so we try to put stuff into one framework and framework. And for me, what I've learned in all, you know, I travel over before COVID over a quarter million miles a year. And I realize with every trip and every visit, I know nothing. I mean, the more time I spend on the ground, the better questions I might ask, but my understanding still gets overwhelmed by the complexity and nuance of these bottom up rising societies around the world. And so one of it is just simply a, a, a belief in that and an understanding and conviction of that. You can understand your interests, but have to understand that bottom-up interests are going to be quite different and perceived quite differently elsewhere. And secondly, to think about this engagement as a co-authorship. So at one level, soft power, even the term soft power suggests like we are using a new tool to let our power out or to, to control our interests. And you know, every country has an interest, it's fine. But in a way, it's not just about so soft power, it's about co-authorship. It's about there's a lot we bring to the table. There's a lot you bring to the table. Together, we can come up with very interesting solutions and ideas, whether they're policy or business or tech innovation, which in fact makes this not a zero sum discussion, but a very much growth and aggregated discussion. And the best companies out there get this. Some of the more new generation leaning forward people in policy understand it, but the rest of the world expects it. And I will tell you, for all the shifts that I've seen around the world and people kind of moved on from us and they're off doing things on their own terms in their own way, I will very often hear from people from Asia to Latin America, you know, where are you guys? 
And so the fact is, it's not like the rest of the world wants to rely only on themselves or only on China. We would have a welcome seat at the table if one, if we took it and we brought it in a sense of spirit that I'm describing. And I think that's what the 21st century will be about. I wonder, though, when kids think about America uh, in the 2020s, uh, they think about particularly racial injustice and the other racial problems in America. Um, I don't know if you uh, follow English football, but English football teams now take the knee before all games um, in, in honor of Black Lives Matter. Do you think that that is a good manifestation of American soft power? I think, look, I think that is clearly, as, as it has triggered a, a massive shift in conversation here at home, in, in particular places, Europe is a big example of this. There's been a lot of camaraderie around it that has been, I think, very powerful. And to the degree that we're having serious discussions, not only about it as a thing, but literally concrete ways to unleash opportunity for anyone in the world who wants that opportunity and is being squashed from getting it, to me is kind of the anchoring question theme that I think about. And then what ends up happening is that globally, it's not so much just simply Black Lives Matter and what America is doing, it is that every society has a version of this. Every society has people of unbelievable talent, unbelievable desire to have opportunity to actualize that talent, to better their societies, to better their families, to better their lives. And for whatever reason, they're having difficulty doing it. It could be for historic, it could be racism, it could be structural, it could just be the way a system is. And I think if we have this conversation that says effectively, we know wherever we are, this is not just an America thing, but we know wherever we are, there is talent in our society that wants to participate and contribute, but isn't able to by whatever reason, and we can address that there, I think we're going to have a very powerful global conversation. It won't be viewed as a thing happening in America. It would be something that we're really looking at. What can we do to unleash the bottom up to have the opportunity that they wish to contribute and for whatever reason aren't able to do so? Chris, finally, uh, you got we got a weekend before the election. Uh, by, by Tuesday, there may not literally be a new president, but a new president-elect, or certainly by Wednesday. What people... What should people be reading over the weekend to be to get ready, perhaps, for a Biden presidency? Yeah, I, I, you're hopeful and optimistic. I hope we have a result by Tuesday or Wednesday. I fear this actually may go a long time because of the logistics of the way ballots are being cast and the pushback that we may get. So we'll have to see how that plays out. I, I was reminded recently, I had forgotten this, but the 2000 campaign um, you know, took six weeks to resolve. And that was one state and, and two relatively you know, traditional candidates so anyway, I hope that is. What are we going to do, Chris, if it's six weeks? You have to come on the show every day to keep us <laughs> sane. In case people need to have insomnia, then I can help them in that period. Um, but to your question, you know, I read, look, I read, like you, Andrew, I read all the time in many things. But there is a book, actually, and I read, you know, I try to read 100 books plus a year, uh, technology, literature, a lot of history, and just kind of the dynamics of the places that I go. But a friend of mine um, is a wonderful writer for The New Yorker named Evan Osnos, who um, you know, covered China for them, I think, for a decade. Before that, he was part of a Pulitzer Prize-winning team of the uh, Chicago Tribune and, and was embedded in Iraq and, and so on. And you know, he just drives down the middle in, in the way great journalists always did. I mean, he really wants to understand the story. There's no hagiography to him. He's a reporter's reporter and also a very beautiful writer. But anyway, he had written a, a very interesting feature on um, Joe Biden for New Yorker, I don't know, maybe a year ago or, or six months ago or so. And of course, because of the election, they said, let's turn this in a book and get it out. And it's a very short book entitled Joe Biden. 
And um, the life, the run, and what matters now. He, uh, Os Osnos just came out with, and actually, uh, you had a you had a, 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 a an online book party for for Evan. And if he's listening, or his people are listening, uh, we're going to get you for the show, Evan. You're not going to escape. Well, I'll, and I'll help make sure that happens because he's just, and, and you saw that in that book event. He's just very circumspect and thoughtful. It's not that he doesn't have views and opinions, but he's got an ability to report and report and report and make sure everything that he says is backed by sources and he gives a broad context. And so look, I've been following Joe Biden for 40 years, right? I mean, Biden was in the primary, the first primary I ever worked on as a kid, Biden was a democratic person. He's been a, a statement of Washington for 40 years. And um, this book taught me a lot. It just gave me a lot of sense of his character what he prioritizes, how he thinks about decision-making, both in the positive way and not positive way. And it just, it allowed me to think about him as an individual and what kind of president he might be in this time in a way that I recommend to other people. You've been listening to Keynote, hosted by me, Andrew Key. Make sure to join us the rest of this season as we explore how to fix capitalism. Make sure to visit us at lithub.com where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. While you're at it, if you enjoyed what you heard, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would also help too. Today's episode was produced and edited by Justin Alvarez and the team at LitHub Radio. See you next week, and thanks so much for listening.